So the text today comes from Philippians 1, 19 through 25, and this is Paul. I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. This is the word of God for the people of God. You can take a seat. Welcome. Good morning. I'm so glad you're here. It's not as toasty as you expected, is it? Some of you, it's exactly as toasty as I expected. A week and a half ago, we had a major AC failure. And uh, we we knew that was going to throw us off for last week. We had to order this gigantic compressor, which looks like a truck engine. And so on Thursday, they installed that. And we were hopeful that maybe this Sunday we would have the AC back. And as they put that in place, they discovered all of these other things that were broken along the way. And so these poor guys have been wearing jeans and long sleeve shirts and sweating out in the Oklahoma sun trying to fix it. They were even working yesterday and just couldn't make it happen. So we feel confident we're going to have AC next week. But thank you for being on your toes. Thanks for being good sports. You guys are always so great. Um, If you're new to our church, I'm glad that you're here. This is a good taste of who we are. We just kind of roll with it. We try to be flexible. We try to be on our toes. Um, I hope that in coming here today, you do know some people. In Tulsa, it is not hard to see someone that you know in any building that you enter. At least that's my experience of Tulsa. So I hope that you're coming in and you're among friends. Now, maybe you're coming in here and you're feeling a little bit nervous being in church for the first time in a while or being in this church for the first time, or maybe you're feeling like, ah, I'm getting oxygen for the first time in a while. I don't know if you're here and you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you totally and vehemently disagree with us. I just want to say that I don't think it's a mistake that anybody's here. I think the Holy Spirit has been the one working to draw you in toward Jesus and toward God's family, and so I want to say to each and every one of you, In the name of Jesus Christ, you're welcome and you're wanted, and I'm glad that you're here. So uh, today I'm going to ask you three questions. I'm going to talk to you about two fathers, and I'm going to teach you one prayer. So three questions, two fathers, one prayer. The first question that I want to ask you very simply is, what is the purpose of your life? Now, in all likelihood, you're like me, and most of the time you're just living with whatever's in front of you. Your feet are on on the ground. And so you're dealing with work or obligations or with caring for aging parents or maybe caring for young children and just trying to keep up with life. And so to zoom out and ask a meta question like this feels like who's got the time to do something like that? Or many of you would perhaps say, you know, you have an an answer to that question, but admittedly it's a bit aspirational. 
on paper, this is who I want to be, but you're keenly aware of the gap between the self that you profess to be or you'd really hope to be, the purpose you long to live into, and the way that you actually live most of your life. It's kind of like when I worked at a local retail store in college, store 359 of a major chain, which I previously said but will not say again today, where the mission of the staff was to provide fanatical customer service. And I knew, based on the experience of our customers, that we did not deliver on that promise. Sometimes there is a gap between the purpose we hope to be living into and informing our lives and the way that we actually live. It's often at times of crisis that we see what's the most important to us. Uh, A.W. Tozer said there are seven uh, tests or rules that we could use to get a sense of what is really our purpose or what is actually the most important stuff in our lives. The first one that Tozer provided was, what do we want most? What do, like, in the core of our heart, the thing that we long for, what is that? The second thing he said is, what is, what is it that we think about most? What's going on, you know, autopilot in your brain? Like, what's, what's in, your, uh, in your thought life? Third, he said, if you really want to get at a person's deepest intentions and values, pay attention to what they do with money, what we do with money. Next, look at what we do with our leisure time. Our leisure time is going to give us a good sense of what's important in life. Next, it's the company we enjoy, the people that we spend a lot of our time with. Six, it's who and what we admire. Uh, the things that we're like, oh, I'm a big fan of that, or I, I, I really esteem them for this. And then last, uh, the things that we laugh at, what we laugh at. If we really spent time thinking through some of these, these headings, we would discover something about ourselves. For the Apostle Paul, we see that there's actually a lot of alignment between the purpose that he says, this is what I'm, I'm hoping to live into. I see some of you with phones. I'm going to put that up so you can take a picture of that. Um, there's, there's actually a lot of alignment between what Paul said, this is my purpose, and the way that he actually conducted his life. I mean, he, was a, he had an integrated life, the things that he valued and the way that he lived. And what could have very easily been his personal mission statement, we have verse 21 of chapter 1 where Paul says, for me, to live is Christ. Christ is my everything. For me, existence is Knowing Jesus, being known by Jesus, living and co-working with Jesus. And it's a self-differentiating statement. He says, this does not necessarily apply to anybody else, but just speaking for myself here. For me, to live is Christ. Now, if you had to finish that sentence for yourself, for me, to live is, what would you, how would you fill in the blank? Or perhaps more poignantly, how would the people who know you best and spend the most time with you fill in that blank on your behalf? Or, or speaking of someone else, you know, for, for Steve to live is, or for Sally to live is, how would you fill in a blank like that? Matthew Henry, who's a, a great classic Bible commentator, said, it should be the express desire of every true Christian that Christ be glorified in our lives, that we may know Christ and make him known. This is a very simple idea, perhaps one that you're very familiar with, but it was, it was challenging to me in a fresh way. 
When I talk about the way of Jesus or I talk about the gospel, I often use the words uh, wisdom and being well. Wisdom and being well. Like to live in the way of Jesus is to learn the way of wisdom. That's true. And Jesus asked a person the question, do you want to be well? To learn the way of Jesus is to learn to be well. But apart from any benefits we might gain from being a Christian, any even therapeutic benefits of like, I feel like I've been forgiven of my sins or practical benefits or the friendship that we gain as a part of being a part of a community of believers, apart from any benefits we gain being associated with Jesus, is it your expressed desire and intention to glorify Him with your life? And I would say with Matthew Henry, the, the expressed desire of every true Christian should be to glorify and honor Jesus with our lives, but to expressly desire to honor Him and to labor to honor Him with our lives might be incredibly disruptive to life on your terms. It might be very disruptive to church life too if that were our real ambition. But that's the first question I want to ask today. What currently is the purpose of your life? And is the most honest answer to that question something that you want to stick with? Second question I want to ask you today is, what is the hope of your life? What is the hope of your life? Paul is sitting in prison. He's contemplating the possibility of being executed by the state. And he's entertaining, which is going to be better for me? To be delivered and therefore get to live and continue doing ministry or to be executed by the state? And for him, it was six of one and half a dozen of the other. He said, it's a win-win scenario for me because to live is Christ, but then he adds, to die is gain. It's profitable for me to gain, to, to die, says Paul. I think it's really important to, when we think about Christian hope, when we think about ultimate questions of, you know, what comes next, that we use the language of Scripture to inform the way that we think about it. And it may be surprising for you to learn that nowhere in the New Testament do you find someone saying, so-and-so died and went to heaven? Look over every sentence of the New Testament. You're never going to see that phrase, so-and-so died and went to heaven. But what we do see is things like what's in this passage here from Paul, that if I depart, I will be with Christ. Or he talks in other letters like 1 Thessalonians about being asleep in Christ. That the language of Paul for, for death is to be present to Christ. For him, the destination is not like another place. The destination is Jesus himself and getting to be near to him so he can say to die is gain because I'll be present to Jesus. The hope that he clings to represents the opportunity to be with Christ and he'll hint later in this letter about that, how that hope is ultimately lived out when Christ returns and the dead are raised. So in the New Testament imagination, to die, for those who love Jesus, is to be with Christ. But just as Jesus was raised from the dead, a greater resurrection is coming. N.T. Wright said, heaven is a big deal, but it's not the end of the world. The end of the world is heaven and earth being joined together and the dead being raised. And this is Christian hope for Paul. We see it in Romans chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Revelation 21 and 22 and scattered all throughout the New Testament. For Paul, death is gain because he's anchored in hope. Uh, someone in our church had a loved one die this week. We never know when we're going to get that kind of phone call where a life-altering moment comes. Someone we love is now asleep in Christ or precedes us in death. 
when you think about death, when you think about ultimate and last things, what is your hope? How do you feel? Are you, are you scared? Are you, do you have a sense of positive anticipation? Do you have in the core of your heart a story that narrates all of human existence that helps us make sense of tragedies like death in the middle of our story? Do you share with Paul a hope that can anchor you both in the present and in the future? What's your purpose in life? What's your hope in this life? And then finally, how are you going to make it in life? Um, COVID was very difficult for many of us in many different ways. And in the middle of uh, quarantine in the first months last year, exhaustion and grief and isolation caught up with me. And emotionally, I just hit the wall. And there was a Friday where I was meant to be writing a sermon, and that sermon was not going to happen. And I came home and sitting on the bed, catatonically just angry and depressed, staring a hole in the wall. And like I, I thought to myself, oh, this is what the road to burnout is like. And I said to Emily, I never want to preach another sermon again. I'm an emotional person. I speak in hyperbole sometimes. I preached that Sunday. But Emily knows about me in moments like this, like, like for me, sometimes depressive thoughts are kind of like a wave, and it is going to come until it hits the beach, and then it will recede, and we kind of need to like wait it out. And she said, so I, I'm not going to exhort you, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but like, would you, would you talk to people? Would you talk to someone and just like, like let the light in a little bit? And so I reached out to a couple of friends, and I said, I do not want to talk <laughs> at all. But will you just please pray for me? Within about 30 minutes, I had this feeling like the clouds were parting just a little bit, just, en just enough to let a ray of hope in. And I texted a handful of other friends, some in the church, and just said, you know what? I've allowed myself to get isolated, and I've overworked, and grief is catching up with me. I just need you guys to be my buddies, and I need you to pray for me. And things began to lighten up. And even now, is there are times where I feel like the walls are closing in on me emotionally and I don't know how I'm going to make it. I learned in the course of the last year that there's something to friendship, that it's a strategy that outw outwits my best strategies. And there's also something to prayer that outwits my, my best abilities to control life. And going to my friends and asking them to pray for me, something changed. Paul had the same insight and relied on the same source of strength. He said to his friends at the church in Philippi, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I'm going to be okay. What's happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. When is the last time you, you had someone else pray for you? Maybe you could hear their voice. You could like have, you had a hand on your shoulder. When's the last time someone prayed for you? Now it happens all the time, especially in places like Tulsa, where like you learn someone's going through a hard time. Like, hey, I'm going to pray for you, and then you might think of them later on. You're sending good vibes their direction, but you're not. Lord, I want to have a conversation with you about this person that I care about. Here's their deal. Like, would you help them out? I think you know you're beginning to make progress in Christian community when without elevating your blood pressure too much, you can text someone or call someone and say, hey, I'm having a hard time, will you pray for me? And then they pray for you. 
If you've got people that you feel like are like on speed dial, so to speak, that you can reach out to and you know right now they would pray for me, you know you're beginning to make progress. It happened, uh, I don't know, a handful of months ago, a friend in our neighborhood who is not a follower of Jesus, like doesn't profess to be a Christian, had a kind of uh, operation, like a little surgery. And I use drive time a lot to uh, like voice memo people or call people. Um, it's just kind of fun. It's like, okay, I wonder what random person I can think of today, and I'll call friends. Well, I learned that they were having this operation, and so just kind of like doing what I do, I get out my phone, I press the voice memo button, which I've introduced lots of people to. Go use your voice memo. It's great. And I said, hey, buddy, I know you're having the operation today. I just wanted to pray for you, and I gave him a 30-second, 45-second prayer. I wasn't even on my A game. I was distracted. This is a phoning it in kind of prayer. His wife texted me later and said when he got that, he just started to weep. And, and, and I realized, like, praying for people can even be kind of an evangelistic thing. And a couple of weeks later, they texted me again, said, hey, remember how you prayed for me? Will you do that again, please? And so I prayed for him. Now, this is not superhero stuff. This is just kind of the stuff that we do in Christian community. And I would like to tell you, a life-changing behavior and a friendship-changing behavior would be to when people ask you for prayer or when you perceive that people need prayer, to actually pray for them in the way that they could hear you. So it happened for me this week. Uh, you know, like you kind of go through the ebbs and flows of life, and I woke up one morning this week just feeling a bit tired and discouraged. And so I reached out to three friends, and I say, here's how I'm feeling today. Can you just pray for me instantly? I've got voice memos on my phone of my friends praying for me, and I moved on with my day in a different direction. Try it with somebody. A little bit of awkwardness, a little bit of the vulnerability risk. You may take like, okay, prayer, take one. Sometimes I'll go through like three or four rounds or things, the screen shuts off or like, why did I say that? Okay, I get to try it again. It'll change, it'll change your life to begin to actually pray for your friends. How did Paul make it? Well, it was, it was the prayer of his friends and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What's your purpose in life? What's your hope in life? How are you going to make it in life? Think about these questions today. Next, I want to tell you about two fathers. The first was Roger. Roger was not a person I knew personally, but I got to know Roger and Roger's story as I sat in a conference room and heard about his life from his spouse and his adult children and his siblings as we prepared for his memorial service. And because I didn't know Roger, I had no emotional attachment. I had no bias or prejudice against him. I just walk into the room and I've got my fingers on the keyboard thinking about the eulogy that I'm going to write for this stranger and ready to ask a lot of questions to this family so I can get a sense of who is this person, what's their life, what makes them tick. And as I listened to all the stories, there was an overarching narrative about this person and his life and what was most important to him. And with no humor, I will tell you that if he, if he could write or his family members could finish that statement from Paul, for me to live is, they would most certainly end it with the word golf. For me to live is golf. Now, Roger wouldn't make it to any of his children's events as they were growing up. He certainly didn't make it to any of the events of his grandchildren, but he definitely made his tea time on Saturday and Sunday. And at his memorial service, his adult children didn't have any words of wisdom from dad to get up and share. 
His adult children didn't have any stories of like, here's the quality time that dad invested in me and it just changed everything. But his golf buddies did get up. And his golf buddies chuckled through the stories of funny and superficial things that happened out on the links. And you could see the envy in the eyes of his adult children for the experiences that these strangers to them had with their father. Their sadness in hearing their dad's story from strangers was palpable and heartbreaking. That's one father. There's another father whose name was Jim. Jim was a man who loved God and loved other people. The ambition of his life, though he was far from a perfect man, was to be a person who glorified Christ in everything that he did. And Jim had a lot of health challenges. Many of them he inherited from his parents. And he was realistic about his own lifespan. He had a feeling that he probably wasn't going to make it past 60 because neither of his parents did. Jim went through a bout with cancer and uh, intense chemo and radiation and made it through and looked like he was on the clear and then in the clear. And a couple of years later, that cancer came back hard and it came back aggressively. And Jim was face to face with his own mortality and the high probability of his soon death. Actively processing his feelings and, and, and the, what might happen to the people that he loved the most, Jim was sharing very publicly with his family and his friends in his church that his ambition was to finish his race well. And he said expressly and deliberately that the most important thing in his life, whether in life or in death, would be that God would be glorified. He said, it could happen. The doctors could do this miraculous work. God could stretch out his hand and heal me. And in that situation, God would receive glory and I will be pleased. He said, or it could be that I will die. And in my dying, I want God to be glorified. A decade before he died and I had the chance to work with him, Jim expressed it was important for him to die well as a Christian. And that's precisely what he did. The universal witness of Jim's life and his death was this was a man who was clear about his purpose. For Jim, to live is Christ, and to die was gain. It's two fathers. In Roger, we have a man who lived for himself, whose purpose was playtime. And I saw the void in the eyes of his adult children wishing for the man he could have been. In Jim, we see a man who, who made it his ambition to love God and to love other people, whose purpose was the glory of God. And, and in his life, that purpose was embodied and demonstrated. And as a result of his death, so many of us, including me, were just inspired to try to live more faithfully following his example. It's a great honor to go to someone's memorial service. And something strange happens in memorial services where you're in this liminal space where there's a, a temporary window of vulnerability opened up and you get to think about ultimate things. And almost invariably, I will quote this one psalm when I lead memorial services. And the psalmist says, Teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. And talking about dads, oof, you want to get to the core of someone's heart. Talk about a parent. Talk about dads. 
talk about wounds, talk about funerals, and it gets even some of us this morning in that kind of reflective headspace as we contemplate our own purpose, both the aspirational one and then the one that we're actually living into and embodying. This week I was feeling a bit depressed about myself as a father. Two times in the New Testament, Paul admonishes fathers and he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged. And it felt like a knife in my heart. I hope that I'm just remembering my father through rose-colored lenses. I never remember Phil Odom exasperating me and provoking me to anger. And yet I feel exasperated all the time as a parent. And consequently, I know that I exasperate my children. I'm very, very often not as patient or deliberate in terms of prioritizing connection or playful or joyful and able to be adaptive to their bad moods as I want to be. And I feel in this area of life, like I feel in many areas of my life, like you may as well, like there's a chasm between who I want to be and how I want to be and who I actually am and how I actually behave with the people who are closest to me. I suspect I'm not the only person who feels that way from time to time. And that gap between who we desire to be and who we actually are is the kind of thing that can lead you to your knees in frustration and desperation. And it leads us to a simple prayer that I'm going to teach you today and not even one that I made up. The six words that are simple enough that you could pray them as you're breathing in and pray the other half of it as you're breathing out. Prayer that comes to us from John the Baptist and it's a prayer of one who wants to let go of selfishness and take on the mind of Christ. John the Baptist said quite simply, you must increase and my must, (laughs) I said discrease at both services. Even if you say that, God gets the point. You must increase, I must decrease. Conscious of this gap and feeling unable to to like close it, I pray in desperation, Lord, you must increase in my life. I need more of your patience, more of your love, more of your joy, more of your self-control, more of your selflessness. I need more of that, and I need less of all the stuff that I've got on tap from my heart. As I battle a destructive desire, Lord Jesus, you must increase, and I must decrease. As I feel that tension of wanting to escape as an introvert, It's a person who just wants more me time, wanting to escape from the demands and the noise around me, but needing to be present. Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. Is that I decide whether to lash out in anger and really tell that person what I want to tell them or give a soft answer that turns away wrath like the author of Proverbs said, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. It's the prayer of one whose ambition is to glorify Jesus in every aspect of their lives. There's a scene in one of my favorite movies, and I am paraphrasing because it has an expletive in it, where it's this movie about bad dads. And at the end of the movie, this father who's done a terrible job says, 
Can't somebody be a turd their entire life and try to repair the damage? <laughs> he didn't say turd. <laughs> can't a guy, somebody, can somebody be a turd their whole life and try to repair the damage? The good news is that no matter how you've been and I've been in the past, there is an opportunity in Christ for a fresh start. You may not be able to wipe the slate clean of the consequences of your past ways of living. That may take time, but God can do all things. But there is a chance for a fresh start for you today. Whether you've been living for yourself or living for a less honorable purpose or desire, there's an opportunity for you for a fresh start. Maybe you've been living a fatalistic, despairing kind of life. There's an opportunity for a fresh start for you today as the Lord Jesus can inject His hope into your life. Maybe you've been living emotionally like paycheck to paycheck and things aren't actually coming in. Maybe you feel like you're, you're trying to withdraw more than you have in the account emotionally or spiritually or relationally. There's an opportunity for you for a fresh start as well. Lord Jesus, you must increase, I must decrease. Scripture says through his divine power, he's given us everything we need for a godly life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Could it be the case that that's true? Could it be the case that there's more than enough joy and more than enough hope, more than enough peace, more than enough love, more than enough self-control? Could it be the case that there's an opportunity for a U-turn no matter what you've done? I think that's the hope of the gospel, and that's the hope that we celebrate every time we come and receive Holy Communion as we do every week as a church. We come empty-handed. More likely, we come like with just the evidence of like our hands stained from the sin that we've committed, the good that we've not done and withheld from others, and the bad stuff that we've done, the things that we've thought, not thought. Things that we've said and should have said, we come very aware of our brokenness. Jesus says, I'm willing to wash you clean. I'm willing to give you a fresh start. I'm willing to give you a new purpose. I'm willing to be the means through which you make it in life. I'm willing to give you fresh hope lest you give in to despair. And today I just want to encourage you to see the Lord Jesus, see the mercy in his eyes for you. Hear the invitation for a fresh start and put your trust in him to be all that you need to make it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, all that you invite of us and all that you demand of us, we are incapable of providing by our own strength. And so, Lord Jesus, I paraphrase Paul and remember how even now we believe that through your prayers for us, Jesus, and through the provision of the Holy Spirit, we're going to make it. I pray for the discouraged parent today. Give them the grace and the assurance that they're going to make it. That in you there are, there are enough resources to get through the end of this day. There's enough daily bread to get through the end of the day. I pray for the person who, who is just crippled with loneliness. Jesus wants to befriend you, and he wants to bring you into a new family. I want to pray for the person who feels really sad today about the relationship they do have with their earthly father or they don't have. 
And I pray, Lord Jesus, that in your kindness you would prove yourself again to be that father who runs toward the prodigal child, full of grace and truth. I pray for those for whom the word father is very painful, that you would uh, redefine for them that word, that your fatherhood would re-articulate and redefine earthly fatherhood. And for all of us, Lord Jesus, just like the walking worried, dealing with the ups and downs of life and relationships with other human beings, feeling tired, dealing with the fragility of our own bodies, we pray that you would meet us, Lord Jesus, as we receive communion. Would you prove yourself to be more than enough? Would you speak into our heart words of purpose, words of hope, words of of provision? Would you help us to be the kind of men and women that you're inviting us to be, transformed by your grace and empowered by your spirit? And help us to be people who utterly depend on your work in our lives as we pray. You must increase and we must decrease. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you. It's your name we pray. Amen.